listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Robustly beautiful blooms open at midday sky. Deep, dark, red core fades to a bright yellow at the petal's edges. The vibrant green, veiny leaves grab the eye. Heavy from fullness, the bulbous bush begs for relief. The shears, freshly sharpened, open wide to take the first bite out of the overgrown shrub. Leaves fly and fall, blooms in their petals are everywhere. The cleanup will not be brief. No leaves left attached, the branches naked cut back to the knuckles of old cuts. Full of life moments before, now a barren wasteland of sticks. Have no fear. Cultivation is most difficult, only practiced by those with mighty strong guts. The plant looks like death to some and one that may need to be discarded. Judge slowly and keep patience in your pocket, for then eyes will see that in four to six months' time, the shrubbery will have grown exponentially, soaring to new heights with triple the blooms seen before. Same plant, new garden. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Thanks, you, Jordan, for sharing that poem with us. I don't know uh, if everybody knows, Jordan Lanfear is kind of a bit of a Renaissance man. Ta- uh, poem, a poetry, is just uh, one of his many talents. Uh, I'm sure this won't be the last time we ask him to share it with us. The reason why I asked him to share that particular poem with us today is because it's, uh, it's a very thoroughly Lenten poem uh, in my mind. The idea of uh, pruning and death it seems on the surface when you kind of take a bush down, you know, take all the, the life off of it, it seems, and then that enables it to grow back, like he said, exponentially. Um, Lent is, among the seasons of the church calendar, a little bit unique, um, kind of whereas some of the other holidays and seasons seem to kind of um, give or kind of bestow on us some idea or concept, some some aspect of God's nature or of the Christian life, Lent doesn't really kind of have such a gift. So like, for instance, if Easter gives us hope in the resurrection or if Pentecost gives us, um, you know, the power and life through the Holy Spirit, you know, if uh, Christmas gives us the arrival of Jesus, you know, of salvation through Jesus, Lent doesn't really kind of give anything, at least not at first. It really kind of seems to primarily take away from us. Uh, That's why one of the primary practices for Lent is fasting. Uh, Many of us here are practicing some kind of fast. I've been talking to a few people, um, and some of the ideas that I've heard I really liked. Um, One friend of ours here uh, that goes here is giving up gasoline for Lent, uh, which I think is a really cool idea. So he bicycles six days a week, and then he drives on Sunday because that's that's the practice. You only fast six days a week. Um, Another person I talked to is actually fasting all food which is 
hardcore. <laughs> I, mean, I, don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I could do I mean, I skip breakfast, and I'm like, ugh, I'm sluggish. Uh, Carol and I, of course, uh, just recently had a baby, and so we're kind of inadvertently fasting sleep. Um, <laughs> not intentionally. That wasn't the plan. I was going to give up procrastination for Lent, but I'm going to do it during Advent. <laughs> I heard a groan before I even got to the punchline. Who started groaning? Someone was way ahead of me there. All right. Fasting is and does many things, but I want to be clear. The point of fasting is not to suffer. Suffering in and of itself is not the goal, and certainly it can be an effect of fasting, but it's not the purpose. Fasting accomplishes a few things. For one, it's a gesture of contrition to God. By deprioritizing one thing, we're communicating to ourselves and to God that we are reprioritizing God above everything else. Another effect of fasting is the removal of a distraction, which is why some people will kind of give up media or some form of entertainment. Fasting is meant to kind of simplify our life. That's kind of the idea behind Lenten fasting. And what all this does is it creates a vacuum of attention that frees us up to hone our focus on God and to examine ourselves, to, to kind, of, uh, kind of do some navel-gazing. When we were planning this series, I, I thought, since we are kind of doing some navel-gazing, I thought we could call it belly button Lent. But that's... <laughs> That idea didn't go over. That's about, that's about the reaction I got that time, too. So, um, Today, I want to, together as a group, do a little of that self-same self-examination. Uh, the lectionary texts for today present, I believe, examples or warnings of the kinds of things that might be keeping us from the purposes of God in our lives. And so the sermon today is called Let Go, because we're going to try and do that. We're going to try and let go of those things that keep us from grasping what God is doing, how God is moving in the world and in our life. So let's go ahead and pray before we, before we do that. Father, uh, God, I, just, I, I present this time to you, Lord, this sermon, these words. Father, I just ask you that you would uh, bless this time, that you would help us to receive what you have for us today, Lord, and help us to reject what you don't. And uh, I just ask you that you would, um, yeah, just bless this time, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. So the first uh, lectionary text I'm going to look at today is from the Gospel of John. This is our Gospel uh, text. Uh, John 12, 1 through 5. Let's go ahead and read that. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? So let's look at a little context for this passage. This kind of is at the end of a long kind of narrative arc where Jesus is traveling and kind of all the while drawing nearer and nearer to Jerusalem. That kind of that first part there that says six days before the Passover. That's the Passover, the weekend that Jesus is crucified. So this is kind of a way of saying like, hey, we're kind of in the final countdown. This is like the home stretch here. Uh, <clears throat> he's at Bethany, which is about two miles outside of Jerusalem. Those of you who... We're in Jerusalem, probably know the area a little bit better than, than I do. Uh, but uh, kind of Bethany is like a suburb of Jerusalem, right? Like Bethany uh, is to Mulberry uh, what Jerusalem is to Lakeland. 
sort of, if that by way of analogy. Um, <clears throat> uh, and so we're meant to kind of understand that we're in the countdown to Good Friday. Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead, which seems to have really kind of catalyzed into motion the plot to kill Jesus. This passage is kind of sandwiched in between the uh, kind of the religious leaders, the Pharisees plotting to kill Jesus and plotting to kill Lazarus. So kind of this is right in the middle of a whole lot of like murder planning, you know, a whole lot of like death. There's this kind of moment where, Je- where Jesus is anointed for his death, for his burial. Uh, Mary does it. And while there's, there's kind of so much uh, beauty and significance in the actions of Mary in this passage, I kind of want to focus instead on Judas's reaction, kind of the way that he perceives it, kind of his hot take on it. Uh, Judas commits what I'm going to call the humanist error here. The humanist error is when Christians listen to the voice in our society that says, forget religion, just be a good person. Now, I want to kind of disclaim a little bit. I'm not trying to just kind of foment resentment towards humanists or secularists or secular humanists. Like, that's not my point. I can turn on my radio later on today and hear a whole bunch of preachers doing just that, and I'll explain a little later in the sermon kind of why I think that's wrong. Uh, What I'm talking about, uh, you know, kind of if if you're here or if you're listening to this uh, through the podcast, I'm assuming you are uh, pursuing God or kind of in some way interested or curious about the divine, which is kind of antithetical by definition to humanism. So that's not, I'm not talking to a room full of humanists. I'm assuming I'm talking to a room full of Christians or at least people who are Christ curious. so uh, I'm not just trying to, you know, kind of beat up, um, but uh, the, the impulse to kind of forget religion, forget worship of God, and just focus on being a good person uh, or doing good works, I'm going to call that the humanist error. Uh, Pastor Brian Zahn says that the, this is to bypass the first part of the great commandment and go straight to the second. It's to skip love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and go straight to love your neighbor as yourself. Um, and so, I'm, I'm, again, I'm talking about Christians who kind of give in to the impulse to boil our faith, boil the practice of our faith down to just being a good person. Mary is engaging in an act of lavish, extravagant worship, and Judas just doesn't get it. He doesn't understand what he's seeing. He's kind of, he sees it as like a waste of time, a waste of money. He says, well, why don't you just, you know, sell that and give it to the poor? And here's the thing, at face value, Judas's idea is not like a bad one, right? Like Judas isn't saying, suggesting to do something evil. He's suggesting to do something good. I think that the worst temptations, the worst impulses we have are the ones that sound like good ideas. The worst things that we face kind of are the things that come to us as like, hey, that would be really great if I did that. Like, uh, it's, I think that Judas kind of succumbs to the same temptation that Jesus faced in the wilderness in Matthew 4 when, when, the, when Satan comes to him and tempts him to turn the stones into bread. Now, I don't know kind of what you think that, that scene looks like when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. Like, I don't, I don't know if you picture that, like, I, I asked Carol kind of how she imagined it, and she's like, well, you know, you got Jesus, and he's hungry, and then you have like, you know, Satan comes and he's like kind of hooded and pale. And he's got like, you know, and I'm just like, you're describing Voldemort. Like Voldemort comes to Jesus and kind of tempts him. 
And, uh, or maybe like you picture like, uh, you know, Satan in like a shark skin suit with like greasy hair. You know, he says, you know, pleased to meet you. Hope you guess my name kind of thing. Or, or maybe he's in a bind because he's way behind and he's looking to make a deal. He's got a pitchfork. But temptation never looks like that. I don't think that's how Jesus kind of uh, experienced this. Temptation doesn't come to... If that happened, if Satan like came up to us and like was like, hey, you should do this, we'd be like, no, you're the devil. I see you, and I'm not going to do what you say. <laughs> temptation, true temptation, comes to us in the form of good ideas. And that's kind of what, what Jesus faces in Matthew 4, 1 through 4. It says, The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so kind of the surface reading of this makes it look as though Satan is tempting Jesus to miraculously feed a bunch of people. And again, this is a good idea. There's no question that feeding people, hungry people, is a very good thing to do. But feeding hungry people is not the sin that Jesus was being tempted with. How do we know that? Well, for one, Jesus eventually does miraculously feed a whole bunch of hungry people. It happens. More than once. So if miraculously feeding hungry people was not the temptation Jesus was facing, what was? Well, I think the answer kind of comes in Jesus' response. He says, one does not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I think Jesus was being tempted by the humanist error to make it all about bread. It's not all about bread. It can't be about bread alone. He was being tempted to make his work, his mission, his life, just about helping people, just feed people. You can't bypass love the Lord your God with all your heart, strength, and mind and go straight to love your neighbor as yourself because only the former makes the latter possible. And Judas falls right into this error. That's why it's like a complete non-starter for him. Like he doesn't understand why Mary's kind of so, kind of so openly and fully worshiping Jesus. Kind of a great expression of what I think the, the kind of humanist error is uh, was stated by President Abraham Lincoln. When he was kind of on the campaign trail, uh, people kind of would press him about his religious views, and he was a little bit closed about it. Like, he wouldn't really talk openly about his faith. Uh, and so, kind of, when one moment where kind of someone held his feet to the fire, he gave a response um, that's usually attributed to him. It's, it may be um, kind of apocryphal, but I don't, I don't really... But this is kind of the, the, the gist of what he believed. He said, when I do good, I feel good. And when I do bad, I feel bad. That is my religion. Now, the first part of this statement's fine. When we do good, we should feel good, and when we do bad, we should feel bad. Like, our conscience can be some kind of indicator of, like, whether what we're doing is you know, right or wrong. But it, in and of itself is not the totality of religion. It can't be. To say that this is all of religion is just plain wrong. We can't skip the first commandment and go straight to the second commandment. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't do good works. We should absolutely do good works. Like, you, you won't hear me say that we shouldn't feed people or clothe people or welcome people or be kind to people or show love to people. We absolutely should. The question is where it comes from. Should it come, does it come from a place where 
It's coming from worship of God. It's coming from knowledge of and receiving of love from God. Or is it coming from kind of some self-generated human place? Because whether we intentionally or unintentionally decenter God from our good works, we inevitably will center ourselves in it. I'm going to say that again. Whether we intentionally or unintentionally decenter God from our good works, we will inevitably center ourselves in it. And I think that's what happens to Judas in the next passage. After, he, after Jesus rebukes Mary, I'm sorry, after, after Judas rebukes Mary for wasting this valuable perfume on Jesus, the author gives a little aside and said, he didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Judas's concept of mission, Judas's good works, had no room for the worship of Jesus. And as we can see, I don't know where it started, but I know where it ended, and it ended up being self-serving. It's what will inevitably happen. There's nothing in us that's predisposed to being selfless. At least not me. I won't t- I'll, I'll talk about myself. There's nothing in me that is predisposed to being selfless. I don't have a center to myself that is giving. At my center, I'm selfish. I think, I think it's kind of how we're... Kind of how we're programmed. Every, every neuron, every synapse, every impulse, every instinct I have is to take care of myself first and only. I can't hope to be able to embrace my neighbor with my own love. It's just, it's not strong enough. It just isn't. I would want it to be. Like, this is kind of hard for me to say because I would want to think that I'm, I'm capable of kind of self-generating the kind of love that it's in me, but I, it, just, it just isn't. I need the first part of the great commandment. I need to teach myself. I need to learn how to love the Lord with all my heart, soul, and strength so that I can love my neighbor as myself. So that's the humanist error. And I'll kind of come back to that a little bit later. The second error I want to talk about is the elitist error. Uh, Our lectionary epistle is from Philippians 3. If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based in faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead." So again, I want to apply, uh, supply a little context for this passage. Paul was writing to the church in Philippi, uh, which was most likely kind of just a network of, of home churches, small kind of house churches. And like in so many of Paul's writings, he's urging his audience toward unity. He's trying to keep them uh, from turning against each other. He's trying to keep them unified and kind of one with one another. And... Um, Yet there was a a, a rift within the church, which is evident in the text. You see, he's warning uh, the church in Philippi about certain teachers. 
And so there's this rift within the church. I know that's probably tough for us to imagine, you know, a rift in the church. Like, that's never happened since. That's a joke. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, a few weeks ago, I talked about how Paul's kind of big theological project, his, like, opus, was making the case for the inclusion of the Gentiles in the church. And among those Jews who agreed with Paul to permit Gentiles into baptism and fellowship, there were kind of two schools of thought. Uh, one kind of group of people believed that you kind of had to become Jewish first. You had to first kind of convert to Judaism as an intermediary step to become Christian. So you had to be circumcised. You had to kind of uh, observe the Torah. You had to become kind of culturally and religiously Jewish. And then you could be baptized and come into the church. And then there were those like Paul who believed that you didn't have to do that. You could come and be a Christian as a Gentile. That You didn't have to become Jewish first. You could just be a Gentile and be Christian. So Paul is kind of warning this nascent church about those that are going around teaching the necessity of circumcision. And what these people were doing were basically creating a class system within the church. There was comprised of those who were ethnically Jewish or had converted to Judaism via circumcision, and they looked down on the other group, which were those that had not and were not. And these Christians were kind of considered to be, uh, at best, second-class Christians, or at worst, not Christians at all. There's a couple things to note about how Paul kind of addresses this divide. First, he's absolutely brutal. Uh, there's no way to mince words. He's brutal when he's talking about the, kind of his opponents here. Uh, he calls them evil workers and dogs. And while they kind of refer to themselves as the circumcision, he won't call them that. He calls them the mutilation, which is like, kind of like the worst possible way that you could talk about them that way. And I think this is kind of a very candid glimpse into Paul's mind as he deals with people who are basically kind of undermining his entire life's work. Frankly, he's vicious. I think I kind of have a little more compassion toward kind of the people that were opposing him, like his opponents. Um, I agree with Paul, obviously. I think kind of with the benefit of 2,000 years of hindsight, we can kind of look back at this text and say, well, Paul was obviously right and they were obviously wrong. But, I mean, if we kind of pause and think about what Paul was teaching to these people, kind of the, the kind of... Um, like the, just the monumental scale of what he was asking them to change about what they believed. I mean, th think about it. He, Paul was asking devout Jews to abandon thousands of years of religious piety and tradition. So deeply ingrained was the concept of Jewish election into the, Jew, into the genetic memory of the Jewish people that it's really not surprising that there was a lot of resistance to this. Like, Paul was asking them to change a lot about what they believed. And changing your beliefs is hard. That's a really, really hard thing to do. It still is. I want to look at one more uh, passage from our lectionary. This is a, a passage from Isaiah 43. It says, Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings out chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Do not remember the former things or consider the things of old. I am about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. This is an interesting passage because Isaiah kind of makes this appeal to the, to the memory of the reader. Like he says, thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea. That's obviously a reference to the Exodus, kind of passing through the Red Sea. A path in the mighty waters who brings out chariot and horse, 
army and warrior that's, you know, Pharaoh going through the Red Sea. They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. You know, when the water comes down and kills Pharaoh and his armies. So Isaiah's kind of making this appeal to like, hey, remember all this stuff that God did for us? But then completely 180s it and says, do not remember the former things or consider the things of old. I'm about to do a new thing. I, I think it's easy to overlook or kind of underestimate how difficult that concept is. Like, I, 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 I think one of the hallmarks of the elitist error is intransigence in the face of God's movement. I think that our inability to kind of let go of certain ideas or concepts about God, about following God, about being a Christian, is what keeps us from laying hold of what God's doing. I've said this before, but I'll say it again. Uh, I've said this in sermons past. Our story, the story of our faith, is one that has moved forward as fast or as slow as our ability to change our minds about God. I'll say that one more time because it's good and I wrote it and I like it. <laughs> our story, the story of our faith, is one that has moved forward as fast or as slow as our ability to change our minds about God. I mean, think about the, the, challenge, the, the challenges that we face today in the church and Christianity are the same as those that Paul faced, are the same as those that Jesus faced, are the same as those that the prophets faced, and so on and so on and so on. It's, it's our inability to kind of wrap our head around the idea that God is doing something different from what God did before. And yet the story of our faith has hinged upon individuals doing just that. If at any point in, in Scripture, in kind of church history, someone decided that they had kind of a lock on what God was all about and like wasn't ready to accept any new information, the story of our faith stops. Like if... if uh, if, if, if the people who, if Moses decided God's a burning bush, and that's it, that's all, I mean, that's how God speaks to us. This is the, the bushes on fire are, is the mechanism that God uses to talk to us, and that's it. Well, then when God does something, when God is a, a, a fountain of water coming from a rock in the wilderness, you, he, if, if he wasn't willing to kind of let go of one image and kind of embrace another, the story stops, and so Jesus, kind of the, the, the kind of loggerheads he was at with the religious elite of his time, and Paul with the religious elite of his time, and I think us with the religious elite of our time, is getting people to be open to the idea that God maybe is different from what you once thought God was. Another thing to note is how Paul rightly implies that those who are preaching the circumcision are kind of boasting in the flesh. He uses the words boasting, and he talks about how he kind of contrasts that we're the true circumcision because we don't boast in the flesh. We boast in uh, Christ, in being found in Christ. And uh, I think another hallmark of the elitist error is implicitly or explicitly kind of elevating ourselves over other people. That's kind of the, that elitism that he was facing was kind of that. It's, it's the elevation of, of, of oneself over another people. I think that this is sadly something that we see a lot of in Christianity. And it's something that I've been guilty of on kind of numerous past occasions. I'll, I'll, I'll kind of share this. Robbie, uh, Robbie kind of speaks often about his Appalachian Pentecostal upbringing. Um, and I can kind of relate to when he talks about that in a lot of ways, because I was also raised Pentecostal. But kind of far from Robbie's kind of Appalachian 
expression of Pentecostalism. I was raised um, a in a Pentecostal Messianic church. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with that term, it's kind of a term that gets used vaguely and very generously to describe any kind of expression of Christianity that is um, kind of uh, borrows from or observes Judaism or kind of is uh, culturally um, Judaic. Uh, so like, for, for instance, I'll give you, like here at Oasis, we follow the church calendar. You know, we, we have, you know, Advent and Christmas and, um, what's that one, Adv uh, no, Epiphany and so on. Um, I'm not going to keep going because I'll forget the rest. <laughs> but at my church growing up, we observed the festivals, the feasts. Uh, you know, we had, we celebrated Sukkot and Pesach and Hanukkah. And we celebrated Christmas and Easter because obviously we were Christian, but not, not, you know, nothing else. Everything else was kind of based on the Jewish kind of calendar of feasts. Our services incorporated blowing of shofars and singing in Hebrew. And like Robbie, I uh, have a somewhat kind of conflicted relationship with my upbringing. One of the reasons for that conflict is that I'm kind of now aware of the extent to which I grew up frequently falling into the elitist error. I'll explain. It has everything to do with kind of how I saw myself. Um, I was a Christian, obviously. I was one of God's elect, and I was set apart to be holy. I was in the world, but not of the world. I was very much kind of raised to see myself as being apart from other people that weren't in the church, more specifically that weren't in my church. But not only was I a Christian, I was a Pentecostal. I was baptized by the Holy Spirit. I was empowered by God for His purposes and imbued with supernatural gifts. I had the inside track on ultimate spiritual reality. So even you know, among people, I'm a Christian. And even among Christians, I was Pentecostal. But then even among Pentecostals, I was Messianic Pentecostal. So like, when I read scripture, it gave me special access to God's promises. Like when I read God's words to Israel, they were for me too, because I'm kind of by proximity associated with these things. And this kind of had two major effects on me. It gave me a sense of superiority, uh, certainly among people, certainly among Christians, and even among Pentecostals. I remember my first semester at college, and I was taking my religion classes. I got, I got assigned a book that was written by a Catholic. A Catholic? What on earth could, does a Catholic have to teach me? They don't even have the Holy Spirit. This is my, my thinking. I'm not saying that. It's, it's, I know that we have... I, I was also... Anyway. I heard a great talk that, that Chris gave once uh, where he talked about, and I'm going to butcher it, so I'm going to paraphrase, um, but he said something, for all that we make about being spirit-filled, we don't talk about being spirit-emptied. And I think that kind of the, the antidote to elitism that we get, that we might be able to uh, find, the elitism that we might trick ourselves into thinking that we have because we are Pentecostals or because we're somehow set apart from other people, is the fact that God calls us not just for the sake of being called. He doesn't fill us not just for the sake of being filled, but so that we can be emptied out for other people. But the elitist error keeps us from doing that. So if I could generalize, if the humanist impulse is to try and disregard God or set aside God or bypass God and just be a good person, just do good works, just, just kind of 
feed people or just be good, then I think the elitist error is kind of to the idea that we could bypass serving or, or being emptied for one another and just love God. You see, the elitist error when I was growing up caused me to kind of isolate myself from my neighbor for the sake of my relationship with God. I had tricked myself into thinking that somehow by being associated with or having contact with other people, had somehow damage or kind of lessen or endanger my relationship with God. It was, it was really, it was, it was an error. It was a deep error on my part. I tried to keep the first part of the great commandment, love your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And I tried to do away with the second part. I didn't want to do anything. I don't want to have anything to do with my neighbor. This is an instance where I feel like I'm preaching the sermon that I need to hear in a lot of ways. And so I thank you for kind of indulging me for that. Because depending on my mood, depending on kind of what side of the bed I wake up on, I can fall into one or both of these errors in a given day. If I'm going to be totally honest with you, there have been times in my life, even recently, where I kind of am so beset by kind of the religiosity and hypocrisy I see in Christianity here in America. And I kind of have the impulse to want to just say, you know what? Forget it. I kind of get that like Amos impulse that, you know, where he says like, uh, I despise your festivals and your religious services. I want justice. I want rivers of it. Like I get that in that Amos kind of mood. And I'm just saying, you know what? Forget all of this. Let's not do any of this. Let's just help people. Let's just be good to people. Let's just serve people. And likewise, there's been times in my in my life where I feel myself slipping into my thoughts of superiority and my habits of isolation, and I remember that I have to love my neighbor as myself. I, I, I struggle with this. I think that it's difficult to, it's easy enough to kind of latch onto one part of the great commandment or another, but I think it's hard to do both. The humanist impulse is to try and disregard God and to just love our neighbor. And the elitist impulse is to try and disregard our brother and sister and try and just love God. And I'm here to tell you that neither works. Neither of those works. Just like Chris taught us last week with the parable of the prodigal son, it's not merely a story about a son who rebels against his dad and then eventually repents. And it's not just a story about kind of two sons who each kind of individually reject the father or are estranged from the father. It's a story about how each son, in the act of rejecting one another, rejects the father. And because they are estranged from the father, they're unable to approach one another. I loved that take on the prodigal son, how this one son won't go out and the other son won't go in. And that in and of itself is a rejection of the Father because the Father's heart is to bring those two together. You can't love God with all your heart, soul, and strength if you can't love your neighbor as yourself. And you can't hope to love your neighbor as yourself if you don't love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Both are necessary. To bypass one is to negate them both. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you. 
and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.